0: morning, church. You can be seated. The scripture passage this morning is going to be in Luke, chapter 24, starting at verse 13 and going through verse 49. Um, if you'd like to follow along, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you, and you can find this passage on page 1610. There they found the eleven and those with them, assembled together and saying, It's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high.
1: Thanks, Becca. So, if um you came uh, last week Easter for one of your first times in a while, you get to cross the finish line with everybody else who's been in Luke for a year today. Um, we've been studying Luke for about a year. I... I said at the beginning, I would, I would preach at least a sermon on the seven passages in Luke that aren't in any other gospel. And this is one of those passages. The, the story of the two disciples and Jesus on the road to Emmaus only appears in Luke's gospel and nowhere else. But before we conclude the gospel of Luke, I want to go back and remember what Luke said at the very beginning. Which is why he wrote, why he included what he did, why he did the research he did. And it was because he wanted to give us a gift— He wanted to give everybody who would read this document forever after him a very specific gift. He said, The reason that I, myself, have carefully investigated everything from the beginning and then chose to write an orderly account was so that—purpose clause— so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. He wanted believers and people who were coming to believe for the first time to know that what they were going to hear, what they were going to know about Jesus, was true and that it wasn't speculative, and it wasn't maybe true, but it was certainly true, and that they could know it and be certain enough not just to be— not to be jerks about it to other people, but so that they would know it strongly enough so that when they faced real difficulties in their life, their faith would actually be strong enough to face those difficulties. Sometimes we're really skeptical about certainty in the modern world, that too much certainty is going to make us bigots, or people who hate others, or like don't treat each other with charity, because we won't have humility if we're too certain about something. I can't get into why that's a misunderstanding of the human mind right now, but one of the reasons why we actually need certainty is because when you are caught in the forest of doubt, in suffering, when you have to make very important decisions and follow through on them over a long period of time with real moral and spiritual strength, having no idea what you really believe is not helpful. Right? There are all kinds of doubts that can exist on the fringes and in certain questions that we'll always have. But the certainty that Christ came is crucified and risen. He has redeemed you through his blood. He has promised a future to you in his resurrection. He has given you a purpose and direction in his life, and he has spoken to you through his word. That being fundamental and certain is actually necessary for you to have the kind of courage you need to believe and to obey and to live. Right? So one of the things that you could see is the gift that Luke wants to give is that he wants us to have the gift of, of knowing enough and being certain enough that we're gonna, we have the courage to believe and to obey everything that Jesus has taught, okay? So I'm going to split that up into two groups for this morning. One is, there are certain things in this text that Luke includes so that we will believe, right? They're what Christians sometimes call apologetics. It's reasons and evidence why we can be certain that what Jesus said is true. And in the second part, there are things Jesus told us for our feelings and our needs. That we feel certain things, and we need certain things, and there's certain advice that he's given us, things he's telling us to help us with those feelings and needs that we have so that we can know what to do and how to live and how to act and how to respond. Does that make sense? So I'm going to go through them in two different groups. So the first is, Jesus is working to give you the courage to believe, or these are the truths that we need, right? When you look at this passage, one of the things that you see in his disciples is that they are—they're downcast, they're worried— They're full of doubt, they're troubled, they're not in a good place emotionally and mentally. They don't know what to think, and then you could say, okay, well, what about you? Like, what's going on with with your life and your beliefs and how things are going, and the problems with your character that are taking a long time to fix, and like all the things with you, like, if there isn't somewhere that you're troubled, you may not be observing your life very well, right? Um, Most—and for a lot of us, we know exactly, like, the list of at least just the first five things we're troubled about. And so it's—this is a gift. Like, Jesus wants you to identify with these people because what he's going to offer them is transferable to you. Okay? And so there's there's a few things that he wants to say. This is why you can believe that he's for real first. Right? So th- there's there's four things I want to go over really quickly. The first thing is, he is— The way he talks to them is a little off-putting for modern people who are a little too gripped with the wrong kind of non-combativeness and passiveness in discussing things with others. So when they're worried and concerned, you know what he says to them? He's like, you guys, I told you. Like, you're so foolish. Twice, once to the women and once to his apostles, he says, don't you remember? I I told you this. Like, I literally— I took you all aside and I said, Hey, you guys, we're going to Jerusalem. They're going to hate me there. They're going to hand me over to people. They're going to kill me. I'm going to be buried. And on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. And don't you remember? I said that. And then Peter said, No, Lord, that's not going to happen. And then I called Peter Satan. Do you remember that? When I was like, get behind me, Satan. Do you remember that? And they're like, oh yeah, we remember that. Like that, that was intentional drama. I was trying to get you to hear this thing that was hard for you to hear. Right? And, he, and he tells that to the women because he'd said it to them. He tells it to the apostles because he'd said it to them. He's like, listen, this state that you're in of doubt and fear and trouble, I'm gonna help you. Like, I'm about to tell you some stuff you need because I love you, and I, no matter how you got here, I care about you, and I'm gonna—I want to help. But here's what I want you to know. This never had to happen. Like, the state that you're in right now where you're troubled and hurt, and you don't know what to do and all that. Listen, if you had just listened to me if you didn't listen with your desires, and so like only hear what you wanted to hear, if you'd listened with the kingdom in mind and with like me in mind, you would have heard all this stuff and you would have brought it in your heart. You would have believed it and you would have known it and all this stuff would have happened. You'd be like, yeah, that's just what Jesus said. Yeah, I know that. No problem. And then he also says, not only did I literally tell you, but the scriptures had told you, like if you had just read the Bible— You would have known from the Bible that the Messiah had to come, that the Messiah would suffer, that the Messiah would be mistreated, that he would be killed, that he would rise from the dead, and then he would enter into his glory. You would have known that just from the Bible, and you didn't know from either. Your confusion is actually self-inflicted, which has good news that I will get to later in the sermon. But sometimes it's just helpful to be like, man, I'm so hurt, and I'm so lost, and I'm so confused, and I'm so frustrated. Jesus, you're doing a terrible job of leading and revealing to me. And sometimes it's good news for Jesus to be like, it's not me. You're actually a lot thicker than you think you are. And that's really good news, because if that's true, then the minute you change your mind, the minute, like it says three times in this passage, your mind gets opened to the right things, boom! Things can change so fast for the better, right? The second thing is, Jesus affirms the Old Testament witness. That's a big deal. That's two-thirds of our Bible. And then Old Testament is the hardest thing to support on documentary evidence because it's so much older than the New Testament, and there's fewer documents written to support it. And so people often attack it. They're like, oh, who knows what was originally written in there, and we could never know. And well, there's two places where Jesus explicitly says that not one letter or word in the Old Testament is going to pass away until he fulfills it all. He does that explicitly twice. But here in this passage, he does it implicitly. He says that the whole Testament is a complete and perfect record of everything the Messiah was going to be, become, do, you should have known. Well, how could you have known if it was a bad witness? You couldn't have. The reason you should have known is because the Old Testament is a great witness. And what we do actually know historically is even though we can't go back to the time of Moses to make sure that the Old Testament is perfectly textually from there till now, though we don't have any evidence it's not, what we can know is, is that the Old Testament that we have right now is textually the same one Jesus read. So the Old Testament that Jesus says, this is right, is the same one that we have now. And so listen, most of us don't read the Old Testament because we're like, you know what, I just want to be more Jewish. Like one day you like woke up and you're like, Jewish people are just cool. I'm just, I want to be more Jewish. The reason most of the Gentile nations of the earth are interested in a multiple thousand-year-old Jewish document is because we have been brought into one people through the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. And because Jesus is the God-man who has saved us from our sins, and because he is spoken about in that Jewish document, we have become interested in it. Once you realize that was the reason you were interested in the Old Testament in the first place, Jesus' affirmation of the Old Testament is really what you need, not a document that could never have existed like a piece of papyrus that lasted 4,000 years, which physics is against, right? The third thing is, is that he says that the Old Testament witness is really important. Think about it this way for a second. Why does Luke spend most of his resurrection appearances section of his gospel on Jesus telling a bunch of disciples, you guys should have been paying attention to the Old Testament? Why would he do that? Luke knows about other appearances, right? He literally says in this passage, hey, by the time they got back to Jerusalem, Jesus had already appeared to Peter. Why did he include that? Why didn't—like Luke knew the story. He got it from reliable witnesses. He knew it was true. Why didn't he encourage our faith by adding more stories about Jesus' appearances after his resurrection? Wouldn't that have been more helpful? (coughs) Well, maybe. Maybe. They're in the other Gospels. They were counted in some of the epistles, but think about it this way. What's the difference—what would be the difference of having more accounts of more people seeing Jesus after he was alive? If you're prone to disbelieve the ones we have, why would you be more prone to believe just more of them? Right? Apostle Paul said there was one point where Jesus appeared to more than 500 people after his resurrection all at the same time. We literally could have more than 500 of these individual accounts, right? Right? But what's the difference between three and five hundred? If you're willing to believe the three, what's the difference? Here's the difference. This is why I think he did this. Because the Old Testament is a corroborating testimony that is a completely different kind of testimony than the eyewitnesses. Because people say all the time, well, the Christians could have made anything up. Like Luke could have made anything up, and just put it in the Bible and it would just be there. Like, how do we even know this is all right? Okay, well here's something Luke couldn't do. Invent the Jewish Old Testament. That's something Luke could never have done. It's something Christians could never have tampered with. The Old Testament doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the Jews. The majority of earthly Jews have never believed in Jesus. They have not sculpted the Old Testament to tell a story of a Messiah that would be born, suffer, be rejected by them, crucified, rise from the dead, then enter his glory, and not create the earthly kingdom that they were expecting. So what Luke is saying, he's saying, look, if you— understand Christ is risen, you go back and read the Old Testament again with those eyes, you will see in the Old Testament testimony to all of this. That is, God himself has testified that the Christ would die and rise from the dead in his own words, hidden but not hidden, in a document we never—we didn't write, we never could have tampered with, we were unable to change, and therefore stands in its authenticity. This is actually incredibly clever by Luke because he gives us a completely different kind of corroborating testimony in showing that the Old Testament testifies to Jesus, which is exactly what Jesus says in the Gospel of John when he says, I have two testimonies in my favor, mine and the Father's well, where was the Father's testimony? The the Father didn't speak over him in that moment with all the people listening. The Father's testimony was his divine inspiration of the Old Testament that testified to authority and the character and the events that would happen in Christ. They just wouldn't know till later. The Old Testament witness is important to help us be certain of who Christ is. Right? The fourth thing, and I know sometimes we talk— a good bit about about evangelism, about sharing our faith with others, about being Christ's witnesses. But one of the things that you can see in this passage is that what Jesus says is that the gospel commission—that is, Jesus sending us out as witnesses— to tell about the fact that through repentance, we can all experience the forgiveness of sins that will make us one with God, that will enter into his people, and the eternal and temporal benefits of that for us and for everyone in our lives is real. Okay? We are doing that. Jesus is saying that is as much a part of fulfilling the law, the prophets, and the psalms as his own death and resurrection. Do you notice that? That you, in your life, being willing to tell the truth about what you believe and why you believe it. Like it says in 1 Peter, to be always prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have, but to be doing this with gentleness and respect is the way it says in 1 Peter chapter 3 that that is part of your spiritual life, that you are willing to yourself testify to what Christ has done and who Christ is, he is saying here—I mean, look at what it says. This is verse 44. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. So now he's going to tell them all the things the scriptures say summarized. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And, he's still summarizing the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached or heralded or told in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You see what he's saying? Now, in the book of Isaiah, talking about the Messiah who would come, it says God is speaking to his Messiah servant. And he says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back those of Israel that I have kept. Right? So he's saying, you just being the Jewish Savior is—you're going to be the Jewish Savior. You are the Jewish Savior. You are the Jewish Messiah. But that's actually too small a thing. You're going to do a lot more than that, Messiah. He says, I will make you also a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now that is prophesied as something that will happen in and through the Messiah. And Jesus is saying here, yes, through you. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying you and your role as his heralds in all of the earth, wherever you go, whatever you do, speaking the message, the message that he accomplished, but through you is him fulfilling all of the Bible. Now, you might be like, well, wait, doesn't it say he's supposed to do that? Sort of. But remember what he says. He says, don't you dare try to do this until what? Until you receive power from on high. And who is that power? God in the person of the Holy Spirit. It's just spatially impossible for Jesus to evangelize the whole earth. Do you understand? There's too many places, too many people. Jesus has to be expanded, he has to be multiplied. To accomplish this. And so Jesus, that is God in the person of the Spirit, and dwells every one of his heralds—that's us—so that we fulfill that prophecy about the Messiah. Your heralding, your role, your identity in being a witness for what Jesus has done is part of the fulfillment of the Word of God spoken thousands of years ago being fulfilled in you now. I think that's helpful because it's awesome. All right, let's keep moving. So what about how we feel? How about all this troubledness? What does Jesus have to say to that? Okay, if he solidifies our faith by giving us more evidences, but what, what does he say about our experiences, right? He wants to give us the courage to obey, to actually do the stuff we need to do in our actual lives. Okay, so, so one, one of the things is, is that Jesus shows that he's interested in his scattered, no-name people. I mean, think about this. Who are the main characters in Luke 24? I mean, this is the big stinking finale. He's written all this stuff. He's done all this research. He knows all the stories. He knows who saw Jesus. He knows that Jesus reinstated Peter on the Sea of Galilee. He knows that Jesus appeared to Peter at another time. He knows all these stories. Why does he tell this one? Just because the other registers hadn't included it? Like, we've never heard of Cleopas. We never hear of Cleopas again. We don't even get the name of the other disciple. We don't know who these people are. And why are they going to Emmaus? Jesus never went to Emmaus. That's not one of the towns he went to. Whenever he was near Jerusalem, he went to Bethany. So what's going on? Who are these people? Why are we hearing about them? And think about this. It says that it's the day of the resurrection. Right? It says, now that same day. So this is literally Resurrection Sunday. Jesus has 12 hours of sunlight, right? Maybe 16 hours. So let's say 14 hours of sunlight to decide what he's going to do the day he comes out of the grave. Right? He's got 11 apostles. He's got his closest friends among these women. He's got Jewish leaders to tell off. I mean, he's got all kinds of possibilities, okay? And he spends the majority of his day walking up on two disciples we've never heard of and will never hear of again. And he just walks with them for seven miles. That's how he spends his resurrection day. And he like he's like, let me explain the whole Bible to you. And he just— He just spends the whole day walking seven miles and explaining the whole Bible to these two people we've never heard of and won't hear of again, so that they will understand all that it means. So that their hearts would burn within them, that their minds would be open to the truth of the Scriptures, that their hearts would burn with them. They'd be filled with passion, filled with devotion. They would finally understand, though they don't really understand yet. And then he gets to their house. They invite him in. He eats them. He breaks the bread. They get it, then he disappears. What on earth is happening? Right? And and the answer is, like, why didn't he spend six hours doing that with the eleven on Resurrection Sunday? And the answer is, well, I don't know. But the implication is, these two people are important to him. They're just normal people. They were just some of his disciples. That's all. And they were leaving to Ephesus, to, to Emmaus, and... And Jesus just showed up, man, and he talked to them. And he made sure that they weren't lost, excluded, wandering, troubled. He went and helped them. And I think that an implication that you might take from that is, is that he cares about his scattered no-name people. He cares about like us and you and me in our ordinary lives in Madison in 2019. Like we we're not, we, none of us probably are Christian all-stars. Like, nobody calls me to go do cr- Christian stuff. Like, you're probably not some, like, big name in some Christian something I don't know about somewhere. Like, we're not—we're not, we're not super—we're all normal, ordinary people living ordinary lives, hopefully of great significance in him. But, like, we're, none of us are a big deal. It's, it, it's likely going to stay that way. Okay? And, and yet, this is how Jesus behaves. He appears to the women. He appears to these two. Like, you see, one of the things that happens pretty commonly, especially if you are a Christian, like if you grew up in the church, you understand that Jesus cares about you, but you understand it cognitively. Because you. the logic goes like this. The Bible says many times in various ways that Jesus cares about the world. And deductively, if God cares about the world and everyone in it, then that would mean that he would care about you because you're in that group, the world, right? In fact, John Wesley, when he was confronted by the Moravian German Christians, he was like this Cambridge, like Oxford, intellectual Christian, could parse every Greek verb in the New Testament, only carried around a Greek New Testament because he was cool, right? And because it wasn't nerdy then. And then these Moravians were like, who like, some of them were illiterate, right? But they were believers, and and they'd be like, Mr. Wesley, do you believe that Jesus died for you? And he goes, he goes yeah, because I believe Jesus died for the world. And they're like, no, 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 that's not what we mean. Do you believe that Jesus died for you? And he's like, yes, I just said yes. Literally, Jesus died for the world. I'm in the world. I'm one of the people. Therefore, ipso facto, Jesus died for me. And They're like, no, that's not what we mean. Do you believe that Jesus died for you? And he's kind of like, just like, I don't even know what you mean, right? Like two years later, he ends up back in England, and he's hearing somebody read about justification, how Jesus died to set us right with God. And he said it was at that moment that, to use the language of Luke, his mind was opened and his heart burned. He used the language, my heart was strangely warmed. Because, you know, he's British. He's a little emotionally repressed. When your heart burns, you just say it was strangely warmed. You know what I mean? I can say that. I could say that I'm part British, kind of. Probably. So, right? Like he— There's a moment where, like, you're not just supposed to, like, know logically you matter to God. Like, something has to happen where where God opens your mind. Your mind is opened to the truth of the gospel of his death and resurrection for you. And, like, it comes home to you, not just in your consciousness, but, like, in the deeper places of your knowing soul. And oftentimes you'll know that happens when your heart burns within you. Like, something happens. You feel the truth of the gospel connect with your deepest human longings, and it, like, it makes you feel. I know that's hard for some of us. It's hard for me, right? Until I had daughters, I didn't even know what feelings were, right? And, like, that's supposed to happen. And Jesus cares for it to happen. He wants it to happen to you and for you and in you, and he wants it to recur. He wants you to know that you're not this, like, one person in a sea of many— he knows everything about you. He loves you, not just any way. He loves to love you. And he wants you to know it. He wants you to know it in the situation that you're in. And he wants you to be enlivened by it, and to enjoy it, and for it to strengthen you, and for your soul to feed off of it, and for it to give you strength and nourishment every day. Right? And he, he showed how that just in this action. That on his one resurrection Sunday, he spent the majority of his daylight hours with people we have never heard from and would never hear from again, knowing that you would hear about it through Luke and that you would understand that he is not just interested in his all-stars, he's interested in us. Secondly about this is he's guiding us towards each other as he's guiding us towards himself. One of the things that you that you will understand when if Jesus is really opening your mind to the truth of the gospel is that it is fundamental to his truth that he brings his believers together as they get closer to him. Okay? One way this is demonstrated in this passage is why so why does Jesus just disappear? He breaks the bread, they realize it's Jesus, he disappears. Like, is it because there's a strange incantational spell that whenever anybody realizes it's actually Jesus, he like poofs? And like then he like has to wait 30 minutes, and then he can like re-semi-incarnate. Like that's—no! Like it's intentional. Like he intentionally hid himself from them. He intentionally revealed himself. He did this all intentionally. Why? Because of exactly what happened. They turn to each other and they say, wait a second. That was so real. Like don't you remember how our hearts were burning inside of us as he was explaining the, go- the gospel in the Bible to us? And he's like—and then what they do? It says they—they they got up and they went back to Jerusalem. At night, So that in the morning when he appeared to the rest of the disciples in Jerusalem, they were already there. Right? Which is not normal, right? The reason they asked Jesus to stay with them is because it was considered dangerous and not normal and not okay to expect this guy they didn't know to go on at, n- go on at night. Right? It was expected that you don't travel at night because it's too dangerous to travel at night. You, you stay in somebody's house, and if somebody's traveling and you see them, you're, it's your job to invite them into your house. Right? Jesus disappears. It's night. They're like, let's get our shoes and coats, and they at night go right back to Jerusalem. Why? Because they know Jesus is probably gonna appear again. Like, Jesus isn't done, and we need to get together with the others. They just know it. They know that Jesus is—did that and then disappeared because he wanted them to go back. He wants his people together. What he chose to do with them, he did with them together. And we know that's true from the book of Acts. When Acts start and the Holy Spirit comes, right, the reason why the church is so explosive is for two reasons. One, the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the power of the Spirit confirming the gospel preached, changing people's hearts. But also it says that the church was all together like one person sharing their lives, and meeting in each other's homes, and sharing their belongings to anybody who had need, and loving each other. And in that context, God was adding every single day people who were coming to Jesus. And so, one of the things, like when we're troubled and stuck and hurt and broken, and we're like, why is my life this way? There's a number of things Jesus wants to tell us, and we have to open our minds to it. One, It's probably—our mindset, where we are mentally, emotionally, personally, and in our character, is probably self-inflicted. And we need to open our minds that if we would really open our minds to Jesus, he could speak in a way he hasn't been able to yet. Not because he wasn't willing, but because we weren't hearing. Two, he cares about you. Stop really believing he doesn't. He has done so much to show that he does care about you individually. You bear his image. You matter to him. You should be his own, and if you believe in him, you are his own. He cares about you. And three, he has made provision for you to be helped by his other ones. Right? In the book of first John, when he says, this is what will happen if you're really a believer, the first thing he says is, you will be willing to confess the name of Jesus and not be ashamed of it. You'll be like, I believe in Jesus. The very next thing is, you will love the brothers and sisters, meaning the other believers in Jesus. He's like, because how could you pretend you love Jesus if you don't love the people who love Jesus? Because you haven't seen Jesus. So we don't know if you saying you love Jesus is fake. The only way we could know if it's real is if you love the people who love Jesus and are becoming like Jesus. If you like them, that would be some evidence. But it's also natural in part of what the Bible calls, the word they use is, fellowship. Right? It's this, it's, fellowship is, it doesn't have good meaning in the United States anymore. Um, it's, it really had its best meaning in Tolkien's literature. It's a, we say the word community, but community is too weak a word. It is a covenantal binding of friendship that can't be broken. It is a binding of lives together as though you are brothers and sisters. It is, it is a willingness to take on the, the inconsistency and the, stupidity of other people. It is the willingness, like it says in Ephesians, to bear with each other. Well, why would you bear with somebody? Why would you tolerate them? It's because it's not—they're not easy. Otherwise, Jesus would never have to say, tolerate each other, if we were all perfect. Right? One of the first things Paul says is, you're all unified in Christ, now tolerate each other. That is part and fundamental to how Jesus changes us, how he loves us, how he helps us, how he supports us, how he teaches us. In almost every way, what he does to draw us to himself is he directs us to each other and to himself. And if your understanding of you following Jesus does not include you moving closer to others that belong to him, you deeply misunderstand all that the scriptures have spoken about what it means to belong to the risen Messiah. And the longer you hold that view, the more isolated and hurt and broken you'll become, and it will be self-inflicted. And then when you finally come back to Jesus and be like, Jesus, I'm so hurt, he'll likely say something like, how foolish you've been, and slow of heart to believe everything that I told you. Now let's see if we can fix this. Right? The third thing is that the spiritual foolishness that Jesus refers to with these folks can be escaped. It's not determinative, like it's not this thing that must happen to us. All of the pain and troubled heartedness and disillusionment that comes from spiritual foolishness is elective. It's not necessary. You cannot, you cannot experience it, and if you're experiencing it, you can stop experiencing it. Jesus says to these folks, he's like, you've missed two things. One, you missed all the things that the scriptures already said, and two, you didn't listen when I talked. Now think about us now. All the things that Jesus said are included in the New Testament of the Bible plus more, and then all the stuff Jesus is referring to as the Old Testament is still the same. It's the Old Testament. It's all right here. It's in this thing we call the Bible. And Jesus is saying, you should attend to what's said in here. All the stuff that you need said to you has been said in here. Right? It's like the old saying about committee meetings that the committee meeting was long not because not not everything has been said, but because not everybody had said it. Right? Like, God isn't like that. He, he tends to not want to repeat himself in the things he's already said. He wants you to go read what he said, and then he'll say other things to direct you back to what he said. But he wants you to attend to what he said. He wants you to attend with, with, with piety. He, w- he wants you to be curious and open and want to know, and seek to, to know what he's saying with devotion. But he also wants your attendance. Now on one level, that means you should go to stuff. Right? I think for some of us, you're like, I should go to church. And that means like probably at least once a month. Maybe two for particularly ambitious. And I just want to encourage you that that's really not that helpful. Um, The Sabbath comes up every week, turns out. It's like every, after every sixth day, kind of like clockwork. And Jesus' intention for you is for you to be with his believers on every Sabbath. Like he wants you to to be with other believers, to attend to the scriptures, to attend your heart and mind directly in worship of God, to attend to his ordinances of the Lord's Supper, and to participate and celebrate the baptisms of others, to come together to study the scriptures, to come together to commit to follow in Jesus' way with each other and hold each other accountable. We are not the sort of sheep that wander well for a fortnight. Seven days is plenty for us to get off track. And so one of the things is, is attendance, but the word attendance comes from the word to attend to, which comes from tending, right? Like, it's not just one, it's not just to attend something, but you have to give attention and attend to it with your mind and tend it like you would a garden. You have to, you have to nurture the thing. You have to, you have to sing the song to God in devotion from your heart. You have to listen to the scripture preached with an open mind, even if you don't like the personality of the preacher. You, you have to read the Bible and attend it to the words you're reading, even if it's easy for you to be mentally distracted with the things that are coming in your day. Right? And when we do that, God opens the scriptures to us. He opens the gospel to us. He opens things to us. And the spiritual foolishness that is plaguing us begins to dissipate, we know what we must do. We know why we must do it. We make fewer mistakes. There's much less sideways energy. And there are enormous blessings to us and to everyone around us when we live according to the principles of the kingdom for the glory of God because we want to. Right? Jill Reese said this about reading the Bible. Jill's my assistant if you don't know, but she's also a fancy Bible commentator. She said—I was, I was showing her the slides because there was too many. We had to delete some, and we deleted a bunch. But this is what she said about that. She said, I think people don't read the Bible because they think they're too spiritually foolish to understand it. That is such a lie from the enemy. Not reading the Bible is what keeps us spiritually foolish. I thought that was a really good insight. Right? People go like, oh, I can't understand the Bible. I guess I just won't read it. No, no, it's that thought that's foolish, not you. Read the Bible and let it cure your spiritual foolishness. You're, it was written for common people. It's, it's not an academic book. It's like, I don't know if you know, C.S. Lewis once said, he said, stop reading commentaries on the great books. Just don't bother with critical literature at all. Just read the great books. They're actually—the great books are actually written for the common person. The academic literature is basically written to nobody but to their career. So like, don't read a critical, you know, study of Pilgrim's Progress. Read Pilgrim's Progress. Don't read an academic lecture on Athanasius on the Incarnation. Read Athanasius on the Incarnation. Don't read somebody's, like, doctoral dissertation on The Mortification of Sin and Believers by John Owen. Read The Mortification of Sin and Believers by John Owen. And don't wonder if you can understand the book written for the common man of every generation in every culture, the Bible. Tyndale, when he first translated this, he didn't say to the churchmen who thought it shouldn't be in English, you know, when I'm done with this, other scholars who don't read Latin are going to know the Bible as well as you scholars who do. What Tyndall said was, when I'm done, the plowboy and the shoemaker will know the Bible better than you people. Because he knew the minute he got this in their language, and people with piety and attendance actually read it, no matter what their educational background, if they could read they could understand the vast majority of what God would tell them, and a great swath of their spiritual foolishness would be cured and helped. Okay. Jill Reese, I think I'm going backwards. Let's go forward. Okay. <clears throat> One of the most important passages—verses in this passage— is when Jesus says this, he says, don't you guys realize the Messiah had to suffer these things? And he says, when I was still with you, I told you everything must be fulfilled. Because he said, it's already been said. God already said it was going to happen. I'm doing it. Once God spoke it, he put it into order in his providence, and I stepped in and brought it about. It must happen. But one of the things that you and I can think is like, okay, great. Sure, once God said it, it, it had to be fulfilled. It was bound to happen. But why did he have to say it that way and in, that, in the first place? Right? Why should the story have been the story it was? God had a choice in the beginning right? And Jesus says in this passage, he says, he tells us the end of all of this. He says, this is the purpose. After I die and rise from the dead, it will be preached or heralded or told to everyone. Repentance into the forgiveness of sins among all the nations starting in Jerusalem. So he said, the the reason all this will happen is because after I rise from the dead and I make you my witnesses— to every people on earth, starting in Jerusalem and among the Jewish people, it's first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles, but among all the peoples of the earth, everywhere, one good news will be heralded. Your separation with God, the guilt that should hang over your head because of the things that you have done, all of the ways you know you have not become the person you are meant to be, everything that separates you from yourself, from others, from God, from everything, that which will ultimately destroy you, stands ready to be put aside. All that must happen is, you must change your mind. That's what repentance means. It means to change your mind. You must change your mind. You must say, I was going in the wrong wrong direction. I want to go in a new direction. I was walking in darkness. I want to walk in light. I was choosing myself. I realized I was meant to choose God. Whatever you like. I was dying, and I want to be raised to new life. I was serving the devil, and I was meant to serve God. There's lots of metaphors you can use. They're actually all true. The Bible uses lots of them. There's lots of things happening, but fundamentally what always happens is the human subject changes his or her mind. And the result of that change of mind, at the good news of the invitation of Jesus, is the forgiveness of sins, and then everything that follows from that forgiveness of sins. That is the end. That is the goal. That is the purpose. That every human being who has ever lived or ever will live will have the opportunity to be made right with God perfectly and eternally. And that was always the purpose. Right? There's a bunch of passages that I could look at. There's obviously a lot more. I mean, I don't know how many Jesus expounded in six hours. Let me just give you a little taste of two. In Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus came, it said that he, the Messiah, that surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him smitten by God stricken by God and smitten by him and afflicted. Because remember, it says in the Bible, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. So every normal Jewish person who saw Jesus crucified thought, he must be cursed of God. But he was really just bearing the curse of God for you. But this is what was really happening. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Dude, that's not in the New Testament. That's 700 years before Jesus was born. That's in the prophet Isaiah about the Messiah that would come, right? God had already said what the Messiah would do. And then he, out of the forgiveness of sins— Oops, where am I? Out of the forgiveness of sins, it says this. This is one of the most quoted psalms about Jesus in the New Testament. It says this, I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the path of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand." Right? And what Peter says in his first sermon is he says, listen, friends, David said that. Listen, David rotted in his grave. David was one of God's holy ones. He was a believer. He did belong to God. But there is only one Holy One that ever that God saw die and didn't let his Holy One see decay—the Christ. And it's only in him, in that one who did not see decay, that you and I can know that in the end, none of his Holy Ones, those who belong to him, will end in decay. That everyone will know the path of life in resurrection and you will be filled with joy in his presence, and you will experience eternal pleasures at his right hand. But that is only possible because of the death, and the dying, and the pain, and the blood, and the suffering of him dying for you, being pierced for your transgressions, so that all that is still required of you is repentance, not death, not suffering, not damnation, just faith, just repentance. And in repentance, forgiveness is given. And in forgiveness, you become one of his holy ones, of which he promises in the end, you will not see final decay. You will find the path of life in his resurrection. You will know him, and you will ultimately experience his pleasures forevermore. That was always his purpose. That was always the goal. That was always the plan. That's why the Messiah didn't just come and be a king. That's why the scriptures had to say from the beginning that he would suffer and die and be raised, and then receive his glory. So that you could receive his glory. That's the reason. Right? And so before you are a herald, you have to be a repenter. And that is always the right position. So the question is, like, will this, will this matter for you? Like, will you be a repenter? Will you recognize that there was a testimony a thousand years before there were even testimonies about the risen Jesus from the people who saw it? That God testified having seen the resurrection a thousand years before it happened. God saw the resurrection at the sin of Adam. In Genesis 3:15, he says to Eve, he's like, someday there will be a seed of the woman. And the serpent of death will strike his heel, but he will stomp on your head forever. Like in that first curse, when God is giving the curse to creation, he speaks the death and resurrection of Christ. That Christ would suffer, and he would stomp the head of death and Satan at the same time to purchase the redemption of the human race that was being cursed in that moment. And from those thousands of years ago to this moment, it is heralded to you, in this case by me, sorry, that repentance to forgiveness is offered to everyone and to you right now. Let's pray. Father, as we we complete our search through this book and our attempt to learn what you've said in it, we pray that you would help us to take from it the gift that Luke intended to give by your inspiration that because of his truthful testimony, having researched everything, that he would give us an orderly account so we would know with certainty that which we believe. And God, we pray that you would use these truths to free us from our spiritual foolishness, to lead us to each other, to lead us to what you've spoken in your word in a way that maybe we haven't done before, and to be open to what you're doing, knowing that nobody— Nobody really could fully understand all of the intricacies of your plan to bring about Christ. And it's likely we don't fully understand all the intricacies of your plan bringing about whatever you're doing in us. But God, would you, would you lead us into the things that we can know and the things we can control and the things we can do? That we can repent and turn to you to the extent that you give us that grace. That we can come to each other and be honest with each other and try to grow in grace together. That we can believe that you care about us because you show us in so many ways, and we can attend to your word and truth, studying it together and reading it for ourselves. Those seem like simple things to us, God, but help us to be willing to find your greatness in ordinary things that are only ordinary because they're repetitive and because we're dull about them, not because your word is is actually ordinary. Holy Spirit, please come and help us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.